Father, we thank you for uh, we thank you for all those you have gathered together here in this building, but also those you have gathered uh, through the live stream. We pray, Lord, that you would reunite us as one body soon. We uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be building up your church, uh, even as we continue to be more scattered than we want to be. Lord, for those who are uh, home with colds and other illnesses this morning, Lord, would you be encouraging them, help them to know that their church family cares about them, even though they're they're not able to join us this morning. Lord, for those who are waiting on vaccines and other things, uh, Lord, please speed those things up. Bring, bring about the changes that are needed for us to come back together as your local church here. We place ourselves under the authority of your word now. We submit to you as our God, our Father, our loving, perfect King. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your written word, that you'd help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with it and the courage to go through with that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today is the last Sunday in the third chunk of our Genesis series. The book of Genesis is unlike any other document in the entire world. It claims to start at the very beginning of history and cover a few thousand years all the way up to the point where the nation of Israel is essentially really the nation of of Israel, a giant group of people uh, multiplying in the promised land, leading to the Exodus, which is the next book in the Bible. The first chunk of Genesis is all that oldest history, the, the creation of the world, the creation of the first humans, the, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all those things. The second book, or the second chunk of, of Genesis, is the Abraham story, with a little bit of Isaac thrown in there. Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, they are what we would refer to as the patriarchs of the Jewish nation. This is the patriarchal period. Now, if you are paying attention to the world today, the word patriarch in the news is a derogatory term. It's filled with hatred. We're not using it that way here. We are using it as a as a term of honor that these three men were chosen by God to be the the first ones in building this nation that God would use as his chosen people through thousands of years of history. The last section that we've been dealing with, the Jacob section, uh, is, is the most detailed about one of those patriarchs' lives. It makes sense because he is Israel. His name is changed to Israel. And so if you're trying to tell the story of how the nation of Israel got started, it makes sense to zoom in on Jacob and spend a bunch of time there. Jacob, as you'll remember, uh, started in what we would say is southern Israel today. He was a deceiver, a trickster. He was a rotten man to the core. He made lots of enemies within his family, and so he had to run. He had to flee for his life, and he, he fled north to the area of Haran in the Fertile Crescent. We'll throw the map up here that we'll, we've seen a few times. A thousand miles north to Haran. He spent basically 20 years there. He accumulated four wives, a bunch of kids, a whole bunch of wealth in the form of animals, and uh, he, he made some serious enemies, too. He ends up running for his life from Haran, being called by God back to what we would call the promised land, the land of Israel. At the time, it's called the land of Canaan. And we looked at the drama of how he comes back together with his brother Esau, who wanted to murder him, and, but they hug and they make up, but they don't really make up because they go in different directions. And uh, Jacob heads west into the promised land. Okay, let's go to the next slide there. He heads west into the promised land, stocks 
stuff that sucketh, goes on to Shechem. And last week we dealt with what took place at Shechem in chapter 34 and the ugliness of that chapter. We noted that, that God is not mentioned in that chapter, and that's a reason. There, there's just so much ugly, even brutal sin in that chapter. It's almost as though the people of God have forgotten about God so that they can perpetrate the evils that are in that chapter. As we get on to chapter 35 today, Jacob is going to pack up his family. He's going to head south again. He's going to go to Bethel. And if you remember, when he was running from his life for his life 20 years ago, he stopped at Bethel. He was a lone man in the wilderness using a rock as a pillow. But God met him in a dream in the night, showed him this vision of angels going up and down a ladder to heaven, and, and God spoke to him and promised to be with him wherever he goes, to bring him back to that particular spot, and to give him the inheritance of the whole land surrounding the area. Jacob is now going to pack up his family and head to where he should have been last week. We talked about how he had made a 2,000-mile round-trip journey over those 20 years, and yet he stopped 20 miles short in Shechem, and how that led to the evils of 34. Chapter 34 would not have been possible without Jacob stopping his family 20 miles short. So if you're reading along today, we're on page 29 in the Pew Bibles. This is Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So he's going to go just a little bit south. We've got another map to show us what we're doing here. He's come out from the north part of the Fertile Crescent. He's crossed over the Jordan River. He's going to make his way south. We're going to add a bunch of places to that map today as we go. He has with him not just the family that made the long journey with him. He now has a whole bunch of extra people because you'll remember in chapter 34, his rebellious sons go and murder all of the men of the city of Shechem and then kidnap all of the women and children. Now, Jacob has all of these new women and children as part of his household, Imagine how the dynamics have changed in that already very messed up household. The rivalry, the, uh, the, the mistrust, the, the hatred at all levels in that household just ballooned like crazy as these captives came in. He packs them all up. He heads to Bethel where he was last there 2,000 years before with the vision of the angels. God promised to bring him back and it took 20 years but God did bring him back. Verse 2. Jacob said to his household, to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. Notice, it's present tense, the God who answers me. Not just answered me, but continues to answer me. Remember, Final cha the chapter before basically ended with Jacob saying to his sons, you have, you have put a target on my back. The people of the land will hate me now. And yet he, he has this proclamation of trust. here: the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me. He's got a track record of 20 years now to see God's faithfulness wherever I have gone. 
So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Aren't these supposed to be the people of God? The people of the one true God? Why do they have a bunch of idols in the first place? Well, we just mentioned how they added a whole bunch of Canaanite people to their family just days before this. They probably brought with them their idols. But also, remember back a few chapters when they were fleeing from Haran, from, from Laban, Rebecca, I'm sorry, Rachel, Rachel had stolen the little household gods, the little idols of her father. And she had hid them in her saddlebag and she sat on it on top of the camel and then lied about being menstruating at the time so that her angry dad would not search there. She got away with it. She probably still has them. I'm guessing that Jacob didn't even know about that until this moment where he says to the people, get rid of all those idols, change your clothes, purify yourself, because we're going to go worship the one true God. I'm sure there was a lot more instruction in there, a lot of questions, all kinds of things going on. But the basic idea is, look, you are not a pure people. So purify yourselves so we can go be in the presence of the one true God. Isn't it amazing that that is not the message for us today? That if it was the message, we would be without hope. Clean yourself up, change your clothes, scrub your face, clean up your heart, and then you can be in the presence of God. None of us would make it. But we're only a little ways into the story here. We don't know anything of Jesus at this point, although this chapter is going to point us to Jesus. We get to look back on it and say, oh, the deal is so much better now. So he collects the idols, tells the people to clean themselves up. Then he takes all the idols and the rings and he buries them under a tree. And I have to ask, why would he do that? Why not destroy them? Why not build a big fire, melt them all into oblivion? Why not just start bashing them between rocks till there's nothing left. I have to wonder, is he hedging his bets? Like, if God does not actually come through, is he leaving his door open so he can come back and adopt the gods of the land as his own? I don't know. But I would not put that past Jacob based on the track record of his life. Verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, we have an answer to a question that was not asked, but I'm sure that they were asking. All right? Jacob says to his sons in the last chapter, you've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. You've put a target on my back. They're all going to hate me. Now, I'm going to pack up my, my expanded family, which is mostly women and children, and a bunch of animals, and we're going to walk 20 miles through the land of the people who hate us. What's going to happen to us? That's the question, and the answer is right there in 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So a supernatural terror is imposed upon these people. God is directly intervening. It doesn't say they heard about this, or they heard about how God had been with them in the past, but no, God is putting in them a fear so that they will not attack his chosen people. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, 
which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth, which means the oak of weeping. There's a few things going on here. It's like the story is getting super compressed here. So he goes, builds an altar, probably a whole bunch of stones piled up. The purpose is you kill animals on the altar as acts of sacrifice and thanks to God. Specifically, it's thanks for taking care of me these last 20 years like you promised. That's his plan. That's what he's going to go do. And there's probably a lot of celebration. There's a lot of thankfulness. There's amazement that God has actually preserved his life prospered him greatly, taking care of him these 20 years, and yet that thanksgiving, that celebration is overshadowed by the death of Deborah. This is the only time we get her name in Scripture. She is mentioned one other time, but basically you'll remember you've got Abraham, grandfather, living in Israel, Canaan. His son Isaac needs a wife. He sends a servant up to Haran, a thousand miles, to find a wife, finds Rebekah, brings her back, and Deborah, the nurse, meaning she actually nursed Rebekah as a child and then was like the nanny through her whole life. She has been uh, kind of the de facto mom the whole life for Rebekah. Deborah comes with Rebekah and then has dwelt now in the land of Canaan with the family this whole time. Why is she north traveling south back to where we thought she would be anyway, where Rebecca and Isaac would be, we don't know. Maybe she's gone with a, a welcome crew. She's gone north in order to welcome the family and escort them back down. But she's really old. I don't understand why she would part of the, be, the, be part of that welcome crew other than she knows she's only got a few days left and she wants to go see the family that she has not been able to see before. Either way, She dies, she's buried under an oak, just as the false gods are buried under the terebinth tree. And the family goes on, mourning this woman who has been part of their lives for decades. Her life spans Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think of the things that she has witnessed as God builds his people. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Potom Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, God has already done this. We've looked at how the name Israel means he strives with God or God strives or God fighter and how that's a summary of the life of Jacob so far. He will be known as Israel. It's kind of interchangeable. Even in this story, sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel. It goes back and forth. But God here reminds him. He says, a few days ago, a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, we don't know, I changed your name to Israel, and I want you to know, even after what your family did last chapter, you are still Israel. You are still my chosen one, my chosen people. You continue to fight with God. O Israel. Now God, God wants Jacob to know that God's plan is unfolding. And that even in that terrible dark chapter of 34, 
as the people of God are sinning in awful ways, God's plan is at work. Yesterday, uh, an author and pastor that I respect, Kevin DeYoung, said this. He said, we may not know what God is up to in our church, in our city, in our denomination, in our country, or in our world, but we can be absolutely certain that he will be true to his word, faithful to his own, and committed to his bride, meaning the church. No matter what's going on, even in our own individual lives, we're like, Tonight, Jen and I drive to Cincinnati so that we can spend the night down there because we have to be at Children's Hospital at 6 a.m. What's wrong with these people? So that Owen can have a needle stuck into his spinal cord and have some medicine pumped into that to see if that makes a big difference so that he can then have a pump installed in his belly to just keep doing that all the time. There's all kinds of stuff we don't know. Yet God knows all of it. He is working his plan in all of that. It's true of our church, it's true of our country, it's true of our world. All of it is known to him, and he is sovereignly working his plan. And he's committed to his bride. Verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty. So you remember all those fake gods that you buried under the tree? Those are nothing. I am God Almighty. Nobody is more mighty than me, he says. Be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So if you've been tracking with us through Genesis, you're like, I've heard this before. Yeah, this is almost word for word, the promise and commission given to Abraham. It's got echoes of that first commission given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have lots of babies. He's got the promise of, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Kings, particularly a king, the king, Jesus, is going to come from your line. And this whole land, it belongs to your offspring. That promise has been reiterated over and over again. God does not change his promises. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So we've got physical represent, uh, references here. So it's God has come down. He's physically there. Now, what, is he a glowing orb? Is he a human form? Is he you know, just a mist with a voice coming out? We have got no idea. But Jacob is able to say, I'm speaking to the God of the universe, the one who just called himself Almighty. And then he's able to perceive that somehow God goes up from him. That is not to take away from the fact that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent all the time, but he is specifically present in certain ways, certain places, and in certain times. You see that over and over in the Bible. Jacob, this is verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now you remember 20 years ago when he's fleeing north, He takes a stone as a pillow, sleeps on it, has the vision, then he takes that pillow, his pillar, and he sets it up as a pillar, as a memorial to what God had done in the middle of the night there. Maybe it's the same pillar now, maybe it's a a bigger one, he's got more people to help him set it up, make it more impressive. But he adds to this, this idea of a drink offering. He takes probably some wine, probably the best wine that he has, and he pours it out over this rock, which is a little weird to us. We don't do that today. 
but it is a way of saying, God, everything I have has come from you. I'm going to take some of the best of what I have. I'm going to pour it out on this, this pillar as a memorial, as a way of saying, thank you, Lord, for providing everything that I have. I owe it all to you. That's essentially what he's doing there. The family will now wipe their eyes after the death of Deborah. They'll pack up again and they'll continue their journey south on their way to where Isaac lives, Jacob's dad. Now the stop in Bethlehem, and the story is going to tell us that at that time it's named Ephrath. If you were to look for it on a map today in Israel, you would find a name similar to Ephrath on most maps of modern day Israel. They're going to go to Bethlehem. It's about 15 miles south, so the journey's getting shorter each time. We've got 20 miles to Bethel, 15 miles to Bethlehem, and we're going to have 10 miles then after that for our next stop. On the way, we learn that Jacob's beloved wife, remember he's got four wives, but he really only loves the one, Rachel, she is very pregnant. She's got to decide. Imagine, imagine yourself, ladies. You're riding on a camel through hostile territory, in the wilderness, pregnant to the point where you are trying to decide, you're going back every few minutes, do we stop now and have the baby or do we go a little bit further? Some of you guys have had that argument like, do we go to the hospital now or do we wait longer? Imagine on a camel in the wilderness having that same conversation. Here's a nice piece of relatively clean soil. Maybe this is where I should stop and have my baby. That's the conversation that's going on as we get to this spot. Verse 16. They journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. Until the modern era, childbirth was a really dangerous thing through most of history. I mean, no sterile environments, no modern germ theory, uh, masks, gloves, all the things that, that go into a hospital environment today, none of that. But it's a whole other level to think of this woman trying to give birth in the dirt on the side of the road. And it doesn't go well. Not because of where she is, but just because births sometimes don't go well. And she dies. And the the last thing that she does before she dies is she names her son, Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow. I've, I've given my life. I'm spent. I'm going to name my son in honor of that. But Jacob changes the name a little. Of course he does. Right, Because this family is all about changing names. Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. Kind of a weird name. The idea of right hand is the place of honor. Now, Benjamin is not even close to the firstborn son who should have the place of honor. Reuben is that one, but we will see in just a minute how Reuben uh, ruins his place of honor. And this is, this is a foreshadowing that this son, Benjamin, born in, his, in Jacob's old age, will be a treasured son. We'll see all through that story of Joseph how both Joseph and Benjamin, the only two sons of the beloved wife Rachel, are the treasured ones. Especially the second half of the Benjamin story, 
I'm sorry, of the Joseph story, Benjamin plays a key role in that story. Verse 19. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. This is the sort of thing you do. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. So Moses is writing this 500-ish years after it takes place, and he says, through the inspiration of God, the pillar is still there. And when we go into the promised land, you guys can check it out and know that this is true. Is that tomb still there today? 3,500 years after Moses writes this. Well, let's look at this picture. Anybody know what that looks like? What's that look like? Looks like a prison. It sort of is, but not technically. So we've talked about a few times the last few weeks how like when they crossed over the Jordan, they came up to Shechem, that that is in what is today referred to as the West Bank. It's the West Bank of the Jordan River Valley. Let's go to the next picture here. This is a map showing you in the lighter color there in the middle what the West Bank is. The red line running around it is the wall that you just looked at. It's 440 mile long wall. Okay, let's go back to the map there. 440 miles long that circles the West Bank. The West Bank is within the boundaries, the ancestral boundaries of the nation of Israel, but it is primarily a Palestinian and therefore a Muslim territory and is essentially at war with, while still being part of, the nation of Israel. And so Israel in recent years has built that giant wall around the West Bank in order to slow the terrorist attacks that are so common from the West Bank into the nation of Israel. If you went to the site of that picture, that wall, a few decades ago, you would have seen this instead. This building is hundreds of years old, maybe going back to the 4th century AD, marking the location of Rachel's tomb. And for centuries, it was just this, like this little chapel on the side of the road. This is less than 100 years ago. If we go to the next picture, this is what it looks like today. The dome is still there. There's a giant wall in front of it, which is, is fortifying what is a, basically a park around it. So it's, it's limiting access to it. And let's go to the next picture. If you were to stand and look south down the street, the right side is the wall for the tomb fortification. The left side is the wall for the West Bank border. If you want to go to Rachel's tomb today, you've got to go through a bunch of security checkpoints. There are soldiers everywhere. If you go to the next picture, turn around, face the opposite direction from that same spot. There's a, a big guard tower there, guards with rifles, and you can see the Palestinians are not excited about this situation. All right? There's a bunch of graffiti. There's burned marks because flaming things have been thrown at that and uh, I, w- I was hoping you could see it. I don't know that you... Well, right, right above the car, can you see the black letters, BDS? The graffiti BDS. You'll hear about this in the news. Right? BDS is a, is a political movement. It stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And it's championed by folks like Ilhan Omar and her buddies in the squad. The idea is they're calling on Israel, calling on America not to be an ally with Israel, but instead to boycott Israel, to divest, that means everything financially and militarily that we've invested in Israel, to take it back, and to sanction Israel, so then to charge 
basically tax Israel, refuse to do business with them or charge them more for business, or refuse to allow certain leaders in Israel to have access to their money on American soil. The BDS movement is trying to erase the nation of Israel. This section of land has been under contention for thousands of years. And it continues still this day. I'm sure that the guards in those towers would appreciate that same kind of supernatural terror that fell on the people of the land as Jacob and his family walked through it. Verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. There's no transition here. This is just, we're, we're talking about walking and celebrating and birthing and dying and burying, and then suddenly Reuben, firstborn son, goes and lays with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Now, you know, we've got four ladies in the family. We've got Rachel, who is the favorite wife, and she is very slow to conceive. And so we end up with Leah having a whole bunch of kids. Zilpah, who is the servant of Leah at the beginning, becomes another wife, has kids. Bilhah is the servant of Rachel, has kids in the place of Rachel. And then finally later, Joseph. And then way later, Benjamin comes along with Rachel. At this point in the story, Reuben who is very much a full-grown man. He's probably got a wife and kids of his own. Out of nowhere, it seems, goes and engages in sexual intercourse with Bilhah, the servant of Rachel. Why does he do that? He's not just inflamed with lust. He is challenging his father as the leader of the family. And everybody in that culture would have known what was going on. He's basically saying, I'm claiming, now that, Rebecca, uh, now that Rachel is dead, I'm claiming who I think will be your new favorite wife, the servant of Rachel. I'm claiming her as my own. I am now the leader of this family. That's what he's doing. He's a rebellious, evil little guy. The verse tells us that Jacob hears about it, and then it goes on. He does nothing. Jacob, who over and over again has been passive, especially in those family tensions where he should be leading his family. He's like, i got better things to worry about. I'm not going to let it bother me. Your son just claimed your wife as his own. And you're just going to sit there quietly. What is wrong with this guy? All the, the, the pomp and circumstance at Bethel. This is the God who has protected me for 20 years and he's promised these things to me. I've built this altar, the pillar, all this stuff. And then it comes back to daily life and he's like, meh, no big deal. What's on TV? It goes on. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. At this point, the family packs up again and heads south another ten miles. They're journeying to Hebron 
which is where Abraham set up his home base in Israel and where Isaac has been pretty much his entire life. Of those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac is the only one to stay put. He spends his entire life inside the promised land. Abraham journeys thousands of miles before God gets him to the promised land. He journeys thousands of miles after that to Egypt and back again, all around inside the promised land. Jacob travels a thousand miles north, a thousand miles south. He's been on this dramatic, ridiculous soap opera journey for 20 years. Isaac, though, he's just hanging out in the promised land. He's also the only one who's never had his name changed. Isaac is he's unique among these three patri- patriarchs. Verse 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirith Arba, that is Hebron. Everything's got more than one name. Where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So they make it back in time, maybe just barely in time, for the death of Isaac. What's really surprising to me is that Esau is there for the burial. Esau, the the one who 20 years before had said, I'm going to murder my brother, Jacob. Jacob flees. They come back together, and we saw a few weeks ago how they had this, this reunion, sort of, but it was not really a reunion, and it was masked in lies, and so they went different directions, and Esau went south to the area of Edom, and Jacob went west into the promised land, and now their dad has died, and they're both there for the funeral. Have you ever been part of an awkward family reunion as a result of a funeral? Some of you have been. Hopefully, it's never been as awkward as, do you still want to murder me? Are we okay? This was a really, really awkward one. How long were they together? What kind of peace or strife was there? We're not told. But Jacob has ended his 2,000-mile journey at this point. And this ends the third section of Genesis for us. When we get together next week, we're going to start into the Joseph section. I would encourage you all to read the Joseph section this week, chapters 37 through 50. Get familiar with it. Um, this week, Lindsay sent me a, a clip from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the Donny Osmond movie version. Now, I've never seen that, and uh, when I started watching the clip, I was like, this can't be real. This has got to be a parody of the real movie. No, it's real. It's a really crazy, weird movie. Uh, don't rely on a movie or a musical to get the Joseph story. Rely on Genesis itself, 37 through 50. Get the Joseph story this week. But as we leave the Jacob story, there's three things I wanted you guys to see in this section. Not just today, but in this whole section. First of all, God is sovereign over this story. We've repeated it many times. God has chosen this family. He chose Jacob. He has stuck with Jacob even when Jacob has had no reason for God to stick with him. When Jacob has worked against God, when he's, he's shaken his fist at God, he's rebelled against God, he's lived only for Jacob, God has continued to sovereignly, faithfully love and work with and for and through Jacob. The grace of God is bigger 
than our sinfulness. I want you guys to hear that. I want you to sink in. The grace of God is bigger than your sinfulness, than my sinfulness, than all of our sinfulness combined. That's really good news. When God saves you, he continues to work in you. He's sanctifying, he's making you more holy, making you more like Jesus. And sometimes he does that in spite of ourselves. Now, he prefers to do that in cooperation with us. Sometimes, like in the story of Jacob, he's got a plan. He's going to work it out. And even as we fight him, he's working to sanctify us. The second thing I want you to see is that this story, this Jacob story, is setting up for us the next section. The Jacob story is an ugly story. Over and over again, ugliness, sin, messed upness. The Joseph story has a fair amount of ugliness in it, but Joseph is a hero. Like Of all the ways that Jacob fails, Joseph shines. Joseph is a, a picture, a, a, a preview of Jesus. God chooses Joseph and uses him to, to save his chosen people. Joseph is a, is a savior, little s, savior, pointing us to the big s, savior, Jesus, many years down the line. There are parallels in their life that will go over. They both go to Egypt. They both return out of Egypt. There's so many things about Joseph that are like Jesus. And the Jacob story sets it up for us. The beauty of the Joseph story is not as impressive if we don't know the ugliness of the Jacob story first. Third thing, final thing. This is all part of a bigger, bigger story. Genesis is not just meant to give us the ancient history of the world and the beginning of the Jewish nation. It is meant to point us to Jesus. So our theme through this whole long series on Genesis has always been Jesus from the beginning. I want to take just today's passage and see how the physical reality the map points us towards Jesus. It moves us in the direction of the gospel, even though there's only little hints of the gospel so far. So today, uh, we started in Shechem. We're traveling south. We get to Bethel. We continue further south. We get to Bethlehem, right? So Rachel gives birth just outside of Bethlehem to Benjamin. She gives up her life in the process. But Benjamin, the beloved son, is born. 2,000 years later, Mary would give birth to the beloved son, Jesus, in Bethlehem in a similarly traumatic set of circumstances where they're, they're scrambling at the last minute to figure out where are we going to do this birth fiasco. Mary doesn't lose her life, but she has to run for her life, take her family and run to to Egypt to save her life and the life of her son. Rachel lost her life. Mary gave birth to the one who would lose his life to save all of us. Both of those births took place in Bethlehem, 2,000 years apart. On their way to Bethlehem, they passed by Jerusalem. Now, it's not even mentioned in the story but they walked past Jerusalem. Jerusalem is nothing at this point. There's no city there. It's just a mountain in the wilderness. 
But what has already taken place at Jerusalem? Decades before, Abraham took his beloved son Isaac, the one who was promised to him, and trudged up the mountain in Jerusalem in order to offer his son as a sacrifice. He didn't understand what was going on, but he was obeying God in this just ridiculous request. But God, in his faithfulness, has an alternative plan. He brings it about. Actually, it's the primary plan from the beginning. It just looks like an alternative plan to Abraham. He, he says, here, there's a ram in the thicket. Use the ram for the sacrifice instead. Isaac's life is spared. The ram is the sacrifice in his place. That's in Jerusalem. 2,000 years after that, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is hanging on a cross on a hill in the shadow of that mountain. The temple overlooks from the top of that mountain. The temple where millions of animals have been given as sacrifices for the covering of sin. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is given as the final sacrifice to cover all of our sin. Your sin, my sin, all of it is given there. And this family walked past that hill on the way to Bethlehem. These are real places. These are real people. This is real history that has taken place. And God has seen fit to make sure that it's preserved for us so that, excuse me, we can marvel at the way that he has worked through thousands of years. Not through mysterious, you know, just some, some guru on the side of the road spouting wise things, but real people, regular people, working in reg- their regular lives in real places that we can put on a map, that we can go visit Rachel's tomb even today. God is at work in these real things. And this story, this, this whole Genesis story is all ultimately about Jesus. Why does Abraham go up on the mountain in Jerusalem in order to offer his son Isaac? Because Jesus, the Son of God, would be offered on the hill in the shadow of it a couple thousand years after that. Why in God's sovereign timing does Rachel give birth to Benjamin just outside of Bethlehem? Because 2,000 years later, Mary's going to give birth to Jesus in the stable in Bethlehem. I imagine the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit planning it all out in the beginning, thinking, oh, this is, I got a great idea. What if we took this place and we had these two births both take place at this place? Oh, that's a great idea. That's going to be great. The story all revolves around Jesus. This family has to wait another 2,000 years. Before that promised one, the center of the story shows up. Can you imagine being a group of people waiting 2,000 years, and then when the one shows up, you miss him? Yet it was all in God's timing. We see that in this final passage, and we'll wrap it up. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, so not when Abraham's up on the mountain, not when Rachel's given birth to Benjamin in Bethlehem, But 2,000 years after that, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, meaning he's one of us, he's subject to the law of God, to redeem those who are under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons, that we would be adopted into the family of God. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
concrete, real terms. You're not just mysteriously, metaphysically, in a kind of way, a son of God. But if you are in Christ, you are actually, as, as real as the map is, as real as those physical places are, you are actually adopted as the son of God. That's good news. And I'm thankful that God has been working through this crazy family all those years and that we now get to be adopted into that crazy family. And we know our family history, and all of us in this room can say we are not as messed up as they were. We're doing pretty good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, um, this crazy story of Jacob. Thank you for the, the sovereign way you've faithfully worked through it. And uh, even now, thousands of years later, you have adopted many of us, even in this room, into that family. Lord, I pray for those who are still outside of that family, who are holding on to their own stubborn way of ruling their own lives. I pray that you would convict them of that foolishness and that you would bring them to repentance and faith that they might be born again and adopted into the family of God. As we sing now, we sing about lifting high the name of Jesus. Would you, would you work in us? Would you help us to marvel at the way that you've worked in history, the way you've worked in our lives? And would you work in us in the future that we, in our lives, may be real concrete examples, pictures of your name lifted high in Jesus' name.